Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 25th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Well, we should start with Rishi. Rishi Thelema. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Thelema himself. Uh, Rishi is giving a spending review. It's happening right now. Uh, I haven't uh, seen any of it because, of course, we were, it just began at a quarter to one as we were getting the final preparations for the program done. But uh, most of the uh, coverage of it that I've seen in the press is a sobering read. The uh, uh, Office for Budget Responsibility saying, basically saying that we're in real deep trouble. Let's have a look at the scale of the trouble that we're in. So, uh, uh, oh. <laughs> sorry to interject there, Mike. <laughs> Net government borrowing, yes, 2021, uh, 2020, 2021, uh, well over 200 billion pounds uh, this year significantly more than uh, in 2008. Um, so uh, not looking very good. Uh, they're talking about freezing public sector pay, except for NHS, NHS frontline staff, of course. Uh, and uh, they're talking about setting aside money, despite the fact they haven't got any, they're gonna set some aside to tackle climate change. And regional inequalities are gonna give uh, bigger bungs to the uh, regional governments uh, and uh, so what else can we say? Well, I suppose we can't really say well, any more until later on this afternoon whenever we see what he actually said, but I well, don't think it's going to be terribly uh, um, uh, good. It's not going to be good, Mike. Well, I think, think we should remind people, of course, the money is money created out of nothing and ultimately out of the control of the UK government. Absolutely. Now, uh, disinformation. Well, a uh, fantastic Twitter thread uh, was sent to me uh, from Laura Dodsworth. Uh, probably not a UK column viewer, but nonetheless, quite a, a, an interesting uh, Twitter thread. And she said, on the 19th of November, there was a coordinated campaign of over 300 tweets comprised of accounts which took genuine and uh, which looked genuine and some which seemed to be bots. Who initiated this campaign and who deployed these accounts to push for online censorship? Uh, so that was sent uh, on Wednesday evening. Uh, and she put some uh, graphics with that because she did a fantastic job and pulled together uh, a graphic with uh, all these tweets on them and they all look pretty similar so let's uh, have a closer look and um, we find that they're in fact identical so the, tw the tweets that she was talking about uh, said more and more people are scared of getting vaccinated after reading anti-vax fake news online we finally need a law to rein in the social media giants uh, at Boris Johnson hashtag online harms and of course this is something we've been talking about for a very long time uh, the online harms legislation is widely expected. Uh, now, this was uh, all taking place on November the 19th, as you can see, uh, and uh, she highlighted this, and she highlighted the fact uh, that Damien Collins, just by coincidence, had been speaking in the uh, House of Commons about online harms on that very day. So let's, uh, let's have a listen to what he had to say. Speaker, I would congratulate my honourable friend, my right honourable friend, Member Kenilworth, on his excellent speech introducing this debate. I think we need to be really clear that the online harms white paper response from the government is urgently needed, as is the draft bill. You know, we have been discussing this for several years now. When I was chair of the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, we published a report in the summer of 2018 you know, asking for intervention on online harms, calling for a regulatory system based on a duty of care placed on the social media companies to act against harmful content. It is, there are difficult decisions to be made in assessing what harmful content is and assessing what needs to be done. But I don't believe those decisions should be made solely by the chief executives of the social media companies. 
There should be a legal framework that they have to work within, just as people in so many other industries do. It's not enough to have an online harms regulatory system based just on the terms and conditions of the companies themselves, where all Parliament can do, all a regulator can do, is observe whether those companies are administering their own policies. It must come with a regulatory body that has an auditing function, that can actually look at what's going on inside these companies, look at the decisions they make to try and remove and eliminate hate speech, harmful hate speech, medical conspiracy theories, and other more extreme forms of harmful and violent content. Companies like Facebook. So that's uh, pretty much what he was saying on the very day that this uh, Twitter campaign seems to have been run. run. Uh, and well, she went on to highlight uh, Carl Hennigan uh, here because he was tweeting this out. Here's what happened when I posted our latest Spectator article to Facebook. I'm aware this is happening to others. What has happened to academic freedom and freedom of speech? He asked. Uh, there's nothing in this article that is false. Um, so this is uh, the image that he posted with that uh, when he posted his article that was in The Spectator to Facebook. Uh, Facebook decided that that was false information, despite the fact that Carl Hennigan is one of the most renowned uh, academics in this area and the area of, of uh, COVID and so on and, and virology and, and so on. Uh, and uh, the headline of The Spectator article, if anybody wants to go and actually read it, was landmark Danish study shows face masks have no significant effect. Uh, but taken down by Facebook. So uh, Laura Dodsworth then, um, if we come back to her, uh, tweeted this out at the end of her uh, thread. If we're talking about hashtag online harms, let's talk about coordinated social media propaganda campaigns. Who deployed this bot network and why? Is it an attempt to influence public opinion and therefore policy? Who is to be the arbiter of truth and censorship? We need answers. Well, look, I'm gonna try and give some answers now. Um, let's see if we can answer those questions. It starts uh, here um, with the Eastern Partnership. This is uh, EU, of course, uh, in September 2017, when uh, a certain guy called Andy Price took part in this event, Democracy and Propaganda. Uh, here is uh, an image from that, and there's Andy Price. Uh, it took place in the Hilton Hotel in London. It was organised jointly by the European Endowment for Democracy and the EU Eastern Partnership. Uh, now, the EU Eastern Partnership is, in fact, a foreign and commonwealth programme that, quote, works to counter and reduce the effects of destabilising disinformation. So Andy Price was there as a representative of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's disinformation uh, unit. It's a counter disinformation and media development programme, as it's formally known. Uh, and Andy Price popped up several more times over the next few months. Uh, he took part in this event, uh, a British-Ukrainian interagency consultation uh, countering cyber threats held in London in March 2018. Uh, and he then uh, went on uh, in, uh, in April of the following year. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, this is uh, still 2018. Disinformation, the playbook and how to fight it, uh, the Brussels Disinfo Lab. Um, and uh, then in October, he took part in the Atlantic Council Stratcom event. Uh, he was in session three of that on October the 3rd. You'll not find this on the Stratcom website anymore. It's been taken down, uh, but you will find it if you want to go looking uh, on the Wayback Machine for this information. You find Andy Price's uh, name on that. Uh, now, every uh, session of this event, of the Stratcom event in 2018, was put on YouTube, Brian, every session except for this session. So the session that Andy Price took, it, took part in 
uh, was not broadcast on YouTube. Everything else was broadcast live. That effectively means censored. That was censored. Uh, so, absolutely, but yeah. he's on the list. Uh, so that was uh, where we discovered this organization, the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Program uh, from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And of course, uh, that organization claimed to be about countering Russian disinformation uh, in other countries. So it was all about foreign office uh, pushing out British soft power into other countries to counter Russian disinformation, particularly in Ukraine, which is why Andy Price was at that uh, Ukrainian-British event. Um, but then what happened? Uh, along comes uh, this, the Integrity Initiative, run by Chris Donnelly. And the Integrity Initiative was, in fact, a foreign and Commonwealth office counter disinformation media uh, and media development uh, sponsored project. And of course, this brought the uh, the work of the of the uh, counter disinformation team straight back into the UK. So they're busy pushing uh, anti-Russian narratives in Ukraine, and then through the Integrity Initiative, that was coming straight back into the UK again. Um, and uh, well, unfortunately the, for the Integrity Initiative, their website was hacked. Those hacks became uh, those documents became freely available on the internet, uh, and they ended up having to issue a statement. Uh, on Russian media publication of hacked documents. Well, of course, it wasn't uh, Russian media publication. This was anonymous that uh, carried out this hack. Nobody actually knows who was specifically behind it. It was published on an anonymous linked website. Uh, and then, yes, some Russian media did pick it up, but so did the UK column and so did a number of other uh, organizations. Uh, the Integrity Initiative, as I say, pushing the Foreign Office's counter uh, disinformation uh, narrative back into the UK and they were doing it with the help of journalists. Journalists such as Edward Lucas from The Economist, Carol Cadwallader from The Guardian um, and uh, well as I say that is a, a, a Foreign Office anti-price uh, project uh, but also people like Ben Bradshaw were involved. Now Ben Bradshaw along with Damien Collins but Ben Bradshaw was also chair of the uh, uh, the digital uh, media, the digital culture, media, and sport uh, select committee at one point, uh, and he uh, was pushing forward uh, anti-Russian narratives at the time. And another person that was involved with this uh, was Sir Andrew Wood, uh, Foreign Office, uh, and of course he was a former British ambassador to Russia, uh, one of the founders of Orbis Business Intelligence. Uh, which of course is the organization that features Christopher Steele, who was the author of the Trump dodgy dossier. So that links this all right back into the whole Richard Dearlove uh, cabal, uh, of which Christopher Steele uh, and uh, Sir Andrew Wood were very much a part. Um, so, but there's a key point here, and that was that, as I say, this Foreign Office funded project uh, from a program in the Foreign Office, supposed to be working abroad, but they brought it back home and that's a very important point. Now then, following on from that, uh, Theresa May obviously was Prime Minister at the time, speaking in January 2018. Uh, she made this comment that regulation will make the UK the best place to start and grow a digital business, but also the safest place to be online. So this was the first time that we started to hear the narrative about online harms. We've got to be very careful about that. But Theresa May's regime was also extremely concerned about the state of the mainstream press. Uh, and so uh, not long after that then, in March, Matt Hancock uh, went into the House of Commons and announced the Cairncross Review, which was all about supporting 
the mainstream press because the mainstream press was losing its ability to control the narrative in the way that it perhaps had done before, social media becoming much more important. So Matt Hancock saying we, the British government, will take action to tackle the challenges our media face today, uh, not, the tackle, not, not the challenges they faced a decade ago. Uh, he said Dame Frances Cairncross will bring her expertise in journalism and academia to tackle these issues with a view to examine the press and protect the future of what he described as high quality journalism. Uh, but, he said, I tremble at the thought of a media regulated by the state in a time of malevolent forces in politics. Can I just interject there, Mike? That, I always found that a very, very interesting statement because the malevolent forces were never really defined. That was uh, something he said. Uh, who were those malevolent forces and are those malevolent forces still acting inside government? And in which case are they the, the ones driving policy at the well, moment? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, he went on to say, get this wrong and I fear for the future of our liberal democracy. Now, of course, what we have seen is that they have exactly got this wrong because we now have a media which is absolutely reliant on government advertising money. Uh, and we've seen this particularly through the coronavirus uh, uh, so-called pandemic. Uh, the, the, the amount of centralised central government money that's going into... Uh, uh, fund uh, the mainstream press at the media is, is unbelievable. Now, Karen Cross uh, published her review and some of those uh, uh, suggestions have been taken up, some of them haven't, uh, but the online harms part of this hasn't made too much progress yet, but we'll explain why that is in a second. Uh, and then uh, somewhat later, uh, here we have uh, uh, the head of MI5, uh, the director general at the time, uh, Andrew Parker, and he was talking about media manipulation, social media disinformation, distortion uh, with new and old forms of espionage, high levels of cyber attacks, military force and criminal thuggery and what's meant these days by the label hybrid threats. And this was really the beginning of, of the narrative from the, uh, the so-called deep state that, uh, that we're in a hybrid war, uh, that it's a perpetual war, that it's a non-binary, that's the, the idea of peace and war being binary states. Uh, is old-fashioned, that we're on a, a, a spectrum now. Uh, so he was talking at this uh, security conference um, saying a great deal more needs to be done about this kind of thing. Um, then what comes along uh, is the UK Council for Internet Safety. This was in October uh, 2018. Uh, so the UK government announced the executive board for the new UK Council for Internet Safety. It included, includes, in fact, Apple, the BBC, Childnet, the Children's Commissioner, uh, the Commission for Countering Extremism, uh, a campaign called End Violence Against Women Coalition, Facebook, GCHQ, Google, the Information Commissioner's Office, Independent Advisory Group on Hate Crime, Internet Matters, Internet Watch Foundation, uh, Internet Service Providers, including BT, Sky, Talk, Talk 3, Virgin Media, uh, Vodafone, it includes Microsoft, it includes the National Police Chiefs Council, the National Crime Agency, the Northern Ireland Executive, the NSPCC, Ofcom, Parent Zone, Scottish Government, Tech UK, Twitter, uh, UKCIS Evidence Group Chair, uh, and the Welsh Assembly. So this organisation was set up. They're still reporting. They've just published this report, Digital Resilience, a Framework and Policy Paper. Uh, go and have a read at that. Uh, and then in March 2020, uh, we had this, uh, the new rapid response unit. Uh, that actually had been set up in uh, April 2019, but had been given uh, temporary funding. 
by 2020, it was given permanent funding. So this absolutely exists within the cabinet office. It is the cabinet office's fake, new, uh, fake news unit. Uh, and uh, it's brought together what they describe as a team of analysts, data scientists, and media and digital experts. They work around the clock to monitor online breaking news stories and social media discussion. So this is all about intelligence gathering. And just that they're talking about reclaiming a fact-based public debate, Mike, but actually what they're doing is closing down public debate. They don't want any public debate. It's not, it's not that they're just saying we need to get the facts back into public debate. If you follow this, this whole monster through, they're, they're saying we don't want to engage in any public debate. And that's because the public debate is very dangerous for these people because it exposes that they're lying. Uh, well, that, that is uh, certainly true, but Oliver Dowden's point of view is that defending the country from misinformation and digital interference is a top priority, and that's, that has to be. Uh, but then, if you remember three or four months ago uh, at one of the coronavirus live streams, uh, General Sir Nick Carter was speaking. Uh, and let's just remind ourselves what he had to say. Being involved with the Cabinet Office Rapid Response Unit, with our 77 Brigade helping to quash rumours from misinformation but also to counter disinformation. Between three and 4,000 of our people have been involved, with around 20,000 available the whole time at high readiness. So now we start to get an idea of the number of people involved in this. Three to 4,000 in 77 Brigade active, 20,000, uh, well, 20,000 including this man. Uh, if we can get him on screen, there he is, Lieutenant Colonel Tobias Elwood, who is one of the 20,000 on uh, rapid readiness perhaps, or maybe he's actually still active, I don't know, but he's certainly 77 Brigade. Uh, uh, he's certainly a serving MP. Yeah, so he's 77 Brigade, but he's telling us what the policy should be on vaccinations. Yes, yes, so, uh, so there we have it. Now, what, what I'd like to do then is to just um, put this, give you a bit of a diagram to try to explain the scale of this. Um, so if we have a look at the government censorship network here, we've got the National Security Council and the Cabinet Office at the top. And the National Security Council, of course, is looking after the main intelligence agencies, GCHQ, MI5, MI6, and the new Joint Biosecurity Centre. And these guys are, all re are, are absolutely involved in monitoring social media, monitoring the, uh, the spread of information across social media, and actively involved in engaging with that themselves. Uh, on the right-hand side, we've got the Cabinet Office, and under that lot, we've got the Cabinet Office's Rapid Response Unit, we've got the National Security Communications Team, we've got the 77th Brigade, we've got 13 Signals, and we've got the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, uh, for Digital Culture, Media and Sport uh, Fake News Unit. Now, that was set up um, in, uh, earlier in 2020. It's a cross-government unit. Uh, it's additional to the Cabinet Office efforts through the Rapid Response Unit. It's tasked with working on behalf of government as a whole to counter the spread of disinformation. And its foremost priority is compiling a comprehensive picture of the scale and nature of both disinformation and misinformation related to COVID-19. So specifically about COVID-19 and the impact these uh, so-called untruths are having. This is the government's words. Uh, now, uh, Dowden said uh, uh, that defending the country from misinformation is a top priority as a part of our ongoing work to tackle these threats. We've brought together expert teams. This is fusion doctrine at work. They're bringing together all these people. 
But this is the kind of scale and the, the, the reach across government of the disinformation effort. And of course, I haven't included in that diagram the Foreign Office's counter disinformation and media development team, because that's allowed, that began this whole process. Yeah, and just for, if we stress for our audience today that all of those units, the Rapid Response Unit, the National Security Communications Team, 77 Brigades, uh, 13th Signals, the DCMS, Fake News Unit, all under the control of the Cabinet Office uh, within this wider army of 14,000 people that insiders are now telling the UK column to watch out for. So this is a massive empire within government itself. The average MP has no idea that this machinery is in place. They have no idea what it's doing. They have no idea who's controlling it. And we can say to our audience with confidence, this is the very mechanism by which the propaganda is being put out. So it's a complete inverse. They say they're there protecting uh, the public um, against false information, but actually this is the machinery by which truth is being stripped out of debate. Um, so that's the, that's the picture. Uh, let's look at a couple of faces that go with this picture then. So who's in charge of the National Security Council and therefore all the intelligence agencies? Well, it's David Frost, uh, and uh, he uh, is the National Security Advisor, of course. Uh, also head of the Brexit negotiations uh, at the moment. And then as for the other part, the Cabinet Office section, we've got Simon Case, uh, who's the Cabinet Secretary and head of the Home Civil Service. So he is ultimately responsible for this lot. So that should answer the question, who's behind it? How many people are behind it? Well, the, the figure of 14,000 is... Tip of the iceberg, tip, I would guess. Well, well, it is because, of course, uh, we've got the 20,000 that are in reserve for 77 Brigade. Uh, so that's probably 14,000 active within the cabinet office, within 77 Brigade and, these, and within the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. But I was sitting all smug this morning thinking to myself that I had a picture of what's going on when suddenly another uh, group, organisation, department uh, reared its ugly head and it's called Hut 18. Uh, it's uh, all about an information war. Um, and the government press release says uh, that this is an information warfare network. Uh, it's been launched yesterday in partnership with the Defence Academy of the United Kingdom. And they're saying that misinformation, fake news or, uh, or information warfare, the concept is not new, but technology and innovation have created an express way for its disinformation. And so they've set up this uh, new cross, uh, well, cross everything group. Uh, they're saying that information warfare, they define it as controlling one's own information space, protecting access to one's own information while acquiring and using the opponent's information, destroying their information systems and disrupting the information flow. Now, this is extremely important um, because uh, I think it was Nick Carter uh, recently. But I, I need to confirm this. I couldn't find it just before we came on the news, uh, the news program this morning. But I think, Brian, it was Nick Carter uh, a couple of weeks ago was saying, that you know the perception within the Ministry of Defence and the, the military was that uh, they would be deployed overseas uh, and they would come home and home would be safe, a safe place. Uh, but home is no longer a safe place where they're at home. They perceive themselves as being at war at home just as much as abroad. And, and of course, this is because they now are working in the world of 
perpetual hybrid warfare where they see information war as being a very key part of what they're doing. Yeah, and the UK public is itself seen as a threat. So even though they're home in the UK, they now look out the window and say, oh, well, of course, we, we're not entirely safe because within the public, we now have terrorists, we now have extremists. So this is a created scenario of fear. Yes, indeed. And uh, well, HUT18, uh, they're saying that uh, uh, information warfare touches so many aspects of our society. So they seek to bring together technical and non-technical practitioners. Uh, they are creating a community of interest, they say. Uh, it's going to involve practitioners, policy makers, uh, thinkers within the Ministry of Defence, if there are any, uh, as well as other government departments, academia, industry, international community. Its mission is to connect, inform, support, collaborate and exploit cyber information advantage uh, and, in, and information outreach through education events and experimentation. Uh, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, the wonderful uh, Caroline Woodbridge Loon, uh, who's uh, from the Information Warfare Group at the Defence Academy. She's saying big data, autonomy, machine learning, social sciences, social media and global connectivity all play an increasingly important role in our lives and if used against us, form the basis of information warfare. I, I just want to say on this Defence Academy, um, if people do their own research into De Defence Academy, I'm pretty confident that what you're going to find is links between uh, Defence Academy and big companies and particularly the big consultancy. So you're, you're going to find that you're not dealing with the military, you're dealing with a collaboration unit between the military and um, globalist companies and consultancy. So effectively, this goes around in one big loop. Um, I, I know we've got some good research on this, so we'll dig it out. But if people think, oh, well, the Defence Academy is the British military. No, no. What you'll find is that this is a, I'm describing it as a soup. This is a mix where it's half military and half influence from the commercial sector. So they are, uh, in fact, building on that uh, architecture and pointing it in a particular di direction, which is uh, about this information war. Hut 18 strive to build the network and the relationships of those working in diverse fields uh, to counter these disruptive techniques. Uh, I mean, well, what can I, you say? Well, I pick up on the word disruptive, Mike, because uh, we had a video clip of uh, a gentleman which we identified through our work exposing the political charity Common Purpose. And of course, what was he talking about? The need to get into organisations and disrupt them. Uh, this is a policy the NHS has been brought to its knees by disruptors working inside. But apparently we've now got these units protecting us for disruptors. Yeah, because some, some people are the wrong kind of disruptor, Brian. Uh, well, I was going to say that, uh, you know, the protest uh, uh, from uh, Ms. Caroline Woodbridge-Lewin is uh, probably that they are doing the disrupting in the first place. But uh, a bit more research needed on that. Uh, so look, I'm hoping that uh, goes some way to answering the question of who is actually behind this uh, and who, how many people are behind it. Uh, the question that is still to be answered is specifically where is the money coming from for this, um, at which particular budgets uh, and so on, and who's behind that. Uh, but nonetheless, the, it should be pretty clear that the infrastructure behind trying to keep a handle on government narrative is massive. Um, and uh, it's something which needs uh, much broader exposure. 
date so everybody who's researching that is a very powerful resource as Mike's demonstrated uh, today by showing the good work on the linking of those Twitter accounts this is stuff that anybody can do from their own home and if there's hundreds of thousands of people researching the information comes to the surface pretty quickly um, okay if you like what uh, we do at the uk column then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there and that would be very very much appreciated i'd just like to highlight uh, an, uh, an opinion piece that's gone up from ian davis uh, yesterday on the website called not led by science uh, it's he's really arguing against this idea of consensus science he's saying the consensus science is basically science denial in his opinion uh, and uh, it is a great article please share it as widely as you possibly can and uh, we just put up this graphic which was uh, sent to me yesterday I don't know who the artist is so thank you very much for whoever came up with this image um, but we're going to put it up at a time when clearly the UK government wants to shut down free speech they certainly want to shut down anybody that dares any part of their political policy and agenda, whether it's to do with COVID or it's to do with the military or wars overseas. If you challenge the UK government, they want you silenced. And I thought this image, uh, although it's, it's, uh, it's got a big American uh, component to it effectively with the labels, but I think this is where we stand. And I'd also like to thank the person that sent us in this image, they, uh, sorry, this uh, email, they were commenting on the policing shown in Liverpool. It says, sinister, take a look at footage of the weekend violence protests, protesters attacked by police in Liverpool. In particular, the man being manhandled on the ground by two police officers shown in the Liverpool Echo. A so-called police officer appears from nowhere and starts punching the poor man in the head. Take a look at this thug's epaulets. There are no identifying numbers. His epaulette is orange, while the others appears to have normal black epaulets. This disgraceful thug doing the punching doesn't look or behave like any police officer I have ever worked with nor is he identifiable as a police officer should be. It's a considerable time since I retired, thank God. But if I were in today, I would walk away. The nausea is too much. Things are very different now, but I wonder why this thug appears different. There was some other comments to that email, but of course, uh, what we see is professional analysis by a former police officer who is clearly recognising that something is very, very wrong inside the police. And I'm going to say it's the duty to... Ev duty of every one of us in this country uh, to dig out what's happening to our police constables and obviously to help the decent people still in the police to uh, clean out the organisation. And you can see that video on Monday's programme, of course. Uh, now, uh, every, lots of people talking about, this is just a still from the video clip uh, yesterday, lots of people talking about uh, Charles Walker uh, intervening when the police were trying to arrest a 78-year-old woman who was uh, amongst a handful of people uh, protesting outside Parliament uh, yesterday. Uh, Charles Walker then went into uh, the House of Commons and uh, uh, raised a point of order. Um, so let's, uh, let's just have a listen to what he had to say. Now, when we watch this uh, video clip, uh, Charles Walker, of course, has been quite outspoken in the last few weeks, and, and he's been on this programme uh, fr from the House of Floor, the House of Commons, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, formerly uh, chair of the 1922 committee, if I remember rightly. So he's been quite critical of Boris and lockdown and, and the, the, the suspension of rights and so on. 
and particularly the suspension of right to protest. So uh, what he says here is, is good in and of itself, uh, but I was uh, equally fascinated by the response from the deputy speaker. Um, so just have a watch of this. Point of order, Sir Charles Walker. Madam Deputy Speaker, I have just witnessed an elderly lady peacefully protesting with a handful of other people be arrested and carried spread eagle to a police van just outside the precinct of the House of Commons. This is a disgrace. This is un-British. It is unconstitutional. And this government, our Prime Minister, needs to end these injustices now. Madam Deputy Speaker, will you bring the Prime Minister and all the Home Secretary here today to sort this out? She was an old, old lady robbed of her dignity for having the courage to protest about having her fundamental rights and those of my constituents and others removed. Well, I thank um, the Honourable Gentleman for his uh, point of order. Um, I, shall, I can see that this is obviously an extremely um, distressing uh, situation. Um, I shall, of course, ensure that the Speaker is aware of, of um, the Honourable Gentleman's comments. But I also know that we have um, ministers here who I'm sure will ensure that his comments are fed back and his very strong views on the incident that happened. Thank you. Uh, I shall spend the sitting now for uh, three minutes to allow for safe um, exit and entry of members of parliament. So uh, that response from the deputy speaker was pathetic. No emotion, of course, she feels that she can't show any emotion because if she showed emotion, she would become a, a woman, she'd become a human being again. So by, by this quiet, reserved delivery, she actually suppresses humanity. She doesn't comment on the fact that a 78-year-old lady has been thrown into the back of a police van. Um, so she's deflecting. But she also says, what did she say? You're very passionate. Mm. Um, well, that actually, she's being rude to him because what she's actually saying is, oh dear, you've broken the parliamentary uh, protocol by actually daring to show some emotion in the house. So uh, there's some pretty vicious psychology going on in this, but they've all walked into that room. They've sat in the room with COVID, the virus floating around, but now they're going to leave the room safely with a, a hundred yard gap between them, three minutes for three people. Yes, that sounds about right. Um, well, of course, where's the, where is the violence actually sitting? It's not uh, with the individuals protesting, it seems. Uh, but the government nonetheless is uh, very concerned about the potential for political violence because they have decided to appoint Lord Walney as independent advisor on political violence and disruption. Um, so he's currently serving as the UK Special Envo Envoy for Countering Violent Extremism at the Home Office, uh, but he's going to be independent in this role, so I'm not quite sure how that works, but anyway, that's a typical uh, description of independence as far as I can see. Uh, and they said that the, uh, the coronavirus epidemic has coincided with an increase in activity and prominence amongst far right, far left and other political groups. And so he is going to examine the points at which the activities of such groups can cross into criminality and disruption to people's lives and draw lessons for the UK from action taken by international partners. 
the independent review of PREVENT will continue to, to provide the required scrutiny of the UK's approach uh, to countering violent extremism through supporting those vulnerable and to being drawn into terrorism, uh, sorry, vulnerable being drawn into terrorism and will provide vital recommendations for how it may be improved. Um, so this is what he had to say. I'm really pleased to be asked to advise the government on how groups from across the political spectrum are seeking to exploit the fear and uncertainty of this period in the UK and elsewhere. And I'm just going to ask everybody watching this programme, have you seen this? Have you? Because I would like to see it. I have not seen anybody using, uh, seeking to exploit the fear and uncertainty of this period from far left or far right groups specifically. But where I have seen it from is the British government and particularly Spy B and Sage. And let's just remind ourselves of this document, which the UK column exposed first in March. Uh, options for increasing adherence, adherence to social distancing measures from Spy B, the use of the media and utterly complicit, complicit and paid for media to increase the sense of personal threat. Uh, and they absolutely felt that this was uh, effective if in making sure that people adhere to social distancing measures if accompanied by other options. Um, but nonetheless, the only group, body, institution, organization that I have seen specifically exploiting the COVID-19 narrative uh, to build fear is the British government. Uh, and you cannot be, you can't be less direct than that because the trail is straight back to the cabinet office and the British government. And it's been the UK column alone that has exposed this trail back to the 2010 doc, uh, behavioral insights uh, document, Mindspace, where the government was boasting that it could play with people's minds and they wouldn't know what was happening. So the trail goes straight back to the government. It goes straight back to David Cameron. And of course, um, um, David Halpin was the man working alongside the French neuro expert, Oliver Willier, who was part of Sarkozy's team. So this was a joint um, British, uh, Franco-British effort to use applied psychology to get the political agenda across. Well, if we're concerned about what's happening in UK and how UK police are acting in an increasingly brutal way, enough for an MP to make a statement in Parliament, the same is happening in Germany. Uh, let's just have a look at uh, this um, uh, video that we've got here, which is Dr. Alexander Gurland, who's chair of the Alternative for Germany uh, group. Now, they are generally labelled as being right wing. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're not interested in that description. We're interested in listening to what the man had to say. Uh, let's listen to his address. I will watch or part it. Of Wenn die Regierung und regierungsnahe Medien diese Teile der Bevölkerung stigmatisieren und beschimpfen oder gar mit dem Verfassungsschutz bedrohen, statt mit ihnen zu reden, werden diese Risse tiefer und das Misstrauen wird größer. Und, meine Damen und Herren, wenn Abgeordnete von der Polizei zu Boden geworfen werden, dann darf man fragen, wo sind wir eigentlich angekommen in diesem Land? 
So if we just do some uh, comments on that, a short clip encouraged people to actually look at the <clears throat> total address that he, he gave, but basically he's saying what's happening in Germany is we've got more and more state surveillance, and now we've come to the situation where members of the Bundestag can be thrown to the ground by the police. And of course, there's been enough videos on alternative media showing this brutal uh, behavior by the German police. Now, we commented on this um, yesterday. We tweeted uh, out that video clip, but we also put links through to the full speech so that there was no doubt at all what the man said and in what context. Uh, so we labelled this as news you will not see or hear on BBC news propaganda machine. And uh, he was warning about what was happening inside Germany. But remarkably, we see the same uh, style of government coming into UK under the Conservative Boris Johnson, UK government of occupation. Well, we got some response and I think it was very interesting to see how people responded. Uh, so this lady said this. Thank you for this. I was never a supporter of AFD, but this speech is totally brilliant. And what I think is so totally brilliant about this reply is somebody is recognising that they haven't agreed with the overall agenda of the AFD party, but when they listen to the words of the man and what he's actually talking about in this case, they can see uh, the warning and they can understand what's being said. So a very clear, concise response. Um, contrast it with this one. Uh, so we've got Simplicius. Uh, he says this guy is an AFD representative. He does not speak for the majority of Germans, nor do the mask refuseniks and conspiracy theorists. So here's the aggressive unpleasantness coming in. And comparing the current German government with Nazis is an insult to those killed by the Nazis and to all those who survived their rule. Uh, well, that's a pretty hard line. So we decided we would uh, uh, respond to this gentleman and we sent him back uh, an image of the White Rose. And if you're not familiar with this, this is uh, a resistance movement that was inside Germany itself. Uh, the, two, the young people involved were sentenced to death and they were guillotined. Um, particularly brave young people standing up against the Nazi regime. So we included this back to uh, Simplicius. Uh, he's no doubt annoyed because I added an O to his name, but never mind. Uh, your reply, Simplicius, uh, misses the evidence and en engages the rhetoric, an insult to those killed by the Nazis, question mark. Your reply is an insult to the brave young German people that stood up to the Nazi regime now reappearing in Germany and UK. Uh, censorship, state security and arrests wake up. Well, we didn't have to make any of that up. And I'm putting the link here. You can freeze this to see it on screen. Uh, but if you haven't watched a film called The Final Days, which tells the story of these very, very brave young people within Germany, I would encourage you to do it and think about uh, what we are particularly warning about on UK Column News today. Well, let's take a break to a new subject because um, through the letterbox, uh, many people are getting this. Uh, quite an extraordinary envelope, uh, Mike. Um, thank you very much to the person who sent this in to us. So it's from the NHS. It's covered with warnings, private and confidential, addressy only, do not forward. 
uh, important health care. Did you know every missed appointment cost the NHS around £160? If you cannot make an appointment, please let us know. Someone else might really need it. I found that a bit bizarre because everybody's saying they can't actually get an appointment to miss at the moment, Mike. Yeah, that's a disgraceful comment, actually. Yeah, disgraceful, isn't it? So this is a very cynical envelope itself because it's using applied psychology to alarm people. Uh, this is to... Um, make them fearful that something is happening. It almost looks like a final inland revenue demand letter. Well, if we take a look inside, uh, I know this one's a bit difficult to read, but we'll pop it up on screen in a second. It's covered with barcodes and scan images, uh, which um, obviously show the uh, scale of digitization. Uh, nevertheless, it's been sent out as a letter. Let's have a look. Uh, I've made up the name Delia Jones. Dear Delia Jones, I'd like to remind you to book an appointment at your GP practice or pharmacy to get the flu vaccination. It's important that you get vaccinated as your age means that you're at greater risk of complications from the flu. So this is coming into people over the age of 65. Why do I need a flu vaccination? It says getting vaccinated each year helps to protect you and others from the latest strain of flu. It goes on to say a variety of other things. Visiting your GP practice or pharmacy, your GP practice and the pharmacies in your area will have a range of measures in place to keep you safe from COVID-19. But I How thought this was about the flu. Uh, well, it's mixed, of course, because this is a scare tactic. It's go and get a flu vaccination. But what we really want to do is uh, give you a COVID-19 vaccination. But that sentence doesn't make sense, does it? Your GP practice and the pharmacies in your area will have a range of measures in place to keep you safe from COVID-19. But we're told we haven't got any measures to protect us from COVID, which is why we're all locked up at home. Mm. Um, this is applied behavioural psychology going on. Flu vaccine availability this year, early demand for flu vaccine has been higher than usual. Some people have not been able to get vaccinated straight away. So that is uh, nudge unit language because, um, of course, suggesting that there's been early demand suggests that lots of other people have been very keen to get hold of it. And really, you should be very keen to get hold of it as well. Because so all get those there other in people, the clue. It's uh, like yes. toilet rolls, Mike. This is like toilet rolls. Yes. The toilet rolls are running short. You should get into the supermarket to get your toilet rolls. But uh, we're going to give you a vaccination. Now, let's look at the end of the letter. This is it. Um, it says this, what do I need to do now? Please make an appointment with your GP practice or pharmacy to get vaccinated and take this letter with you to your appointment as it may be needed. Well, they'll have to scan all those barcodes, Brian. <laughs> the flu vaccination will help to protect you from catching and spreading the flu virus before the peak of this year's flu season. If you already have an appointment booked or have had your flu vaccination this year, you don't need to do anything. So this is this is twisting, isn't it? One minute it's flu, but actually this is targeting COVID-19 and the new vaccines coming up. But this is what fascinated me. It actually had a signature on it. This is extremely rare now in UK government documents. Uh, so this is signed by a lady called Dr. Nikita Kanani. Um, I noticed that she doesn't make any mention of the risks or adverse side effects of vaccination. And that's contrary to the NHS, the NHS's own informed consent policy. The NHS should tell you the risks 
of all medication as well as the advantages but you notice that in this letter she doesn't tell you anything about the risks at all mm. but this lady has signed it and I believe that that makes her personally responsible if somebody takes this letter has a vaccine and then suffers as a result she's put her name on it do you okay. think that's a reasonable statement could be could yes. be so uh, what do we know about Nikki Kanani and should we trust her? Well, I'll leave the audience to decide. Uh, but here she is on the NHS. Um, she's a GP, South East London, Medical Director of Primary Care for NH England and NHS Improvement. And prior to joining NHS England, she was Chief Clinical Officer of NHS Bexley Clinical Commissioning Group. Now, I don't know how old this lady is. I've seen something saying that she's about 40. If we take out the length of time she trained medically and got extra qualifications and then got involved with this, I don't know what her experience in the medical field is, but I don't think it takes her into uh, extreme scientific level. Mm. I'll just let people think about that. What does she say? Um, well, she's held a range of positions within healthcare to support the development of innovative models of care highly engaged clinical patient and public leadership and is passionate about supporting primary care improving service provision and population well-being does that make you feel more comfortable well the other thing she gets into in a very big way is supporting issues with black and um, minority ethnic groups and um, it's amazing that she's got any time for a primary job because if you have a look at the amount of time she's putting into this is very big indeed. And I'll come back onto this subject towards the end of the uh, news. Um, but uh, Twitter account, in order to convince the masses that what we say is right. Now, those are my paraphrased words, uh, but we'll show you a Twitter account in a moment. Uh, so here she is, and this is the NHS site. And you'll notice that what is most important for the NHS at the moment is the fact that we're dealing with the black and minority ethnic issues and there's no mention at all of some 40,000 elderly people who've died because of the healthcare failure in lockdown so this is a measure of relative priorities not only of this lady herself but also the uh, NHS and then if we go to her Twitter account we can see that within it we're back into this political I'm going to call it politically correct um, uh, information um, over and above actually making sure that everybody in this this country is safe and getting a proper health care um, so let's have a look at the sort of thing we can find so here she has retweeted this particular tweet uh, good news as far as I'm concerned and we need to do what we need to do to convince the masses that this is the way to get back to a degree of normalcy that's vaccine related i presume uh in well yeah because at the bottom she's uh, uh, the, the original tweet is pushing the bbc breaking news so you you now know that you're dealing with an elitist group we are just the masses mm -hmm. we can't really think for ourselves so they need to do what they think is what they need to do in order to get us back not to normality but possibly uh, a degree of normal life I'm going to suggest that these are people that need to be watched very carefully and have a look at this one reminder women do not need to be polite to someone who's making them feel uncomfortable so if we pointed out to Dr Nikki Kanani 
that uh, policy to do with uh, vaccines and the treatment of elderly people in the NHS was wrong and that made it, her feel uncomfortable. She would apparently be, be able to be rude to us. Mm. So uh, we'll just give you a couple more because this is uh, more of her initiative. Uh, webinars, hundreds, hundreds of GPs being pulled into uh, these um, dialogues over the internet in order to discuss amongst other things, the vaccination and the COVID-19 vaccination thing. None of this debated at all. Uh, this also all being put on in the background through collusion between uh, this lady and her staff and the GPs. I think this needs watching. It needs people to dig into it further. But of course, it's not as simple as just the NHS uh, because we quickly find that not only is she in that key position in the NHS. She's also here on the General Advisory Council of the King's Fund. And if you don't know who they are, um, we can relax, of course, Mike, because it's an independent charitable organisation. Good. That's always good. With a vision uh, that the best possible health and care is available to everybody. That's pretty realistic in the current climate. We can't, we can't deal with GP surgeries but relax, this independent charity is going to help us all. And it says clearly that they're not aligned with any political professional or any other interests. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so here they are. Uh, this is how much work they're doing. So they've put out 30 publications. They've got 92 blogs. Um, this is an influencing organisation and their job is to spin health policy in the direction that they think it should be going. Uh, but if we come over to this lot, um, we've got uh, uh, internet activity there and Twitter activity. So this is clearly an influencing organisation. I could say putting out propaganda, but that might be a bit hard. But have a look at bottom right, 22 corporate partners um, and supporters. But um, it's independent. So we had to make a video to show this. Let's have a little look at the King's Fund. Hopefully this will run. And uh, we're scrolling through corporate partners, IBM, Pfizer, Roche. Uh, on we go to AbbVie, AstraZeneca, Ringer, Ingelheim, BD, Boots, Edwards, Intuitive, Janssen, Novartis, Novo Nordisk, Nuance, RSM, TPP, UBC, uh, do you get an idea that this is a, this is an independent organisation? Yeah, it's this modern definition of independence, which uh, is means the opposite to what everybody assumes it means. Uh, exact opposite. So we did have a little look at people. Here's Richard Murray, the chief executive. Uh, he was appointed chief executive in 2019 after five years as the director of policy. And before joining the fund, he was chief analyst at oh NHS England and previously held a number of roles at the Department of Health, including the Director of Strategy, Director of Financial Planning and Chief Economist. This is revolving door stuff, yes. right? Uh, Richard initially trained as an economist and spent five years in academia before joining the Department of Health as an economic advisor. Following this, he spent four years as a healthcare specialist, specialist at McKinsey & Co. before returning to the Department of Health. So this is a money economist uh, consultancy, McKinsey & Co. This is, this is 
um, what's the word? This is directing healthcare policy in UK. This is a... Yeah, from a financial point of from view. From a financial point yes. of view, yeah. And we can see this pretty easily by going into their accounts, but we're going to encourage uh, audience to do that. So you should read the message from the chief executive uh, because he's going to help us. He's going to help people make sense of the complexity of health and care. The masses are just too ignorant to really understand healthcare. So this independent organisation is going to help us do that. And I just thought it was interesting that although they're spending a few million a year, uh, they've got 116 odd million tied up in their investment portfolio, um, which seems to me to be quite a lot of money. In fact, the total is 131, 132 million. Um, contributions were made to the King's Fund Staff Pension and Life Assurance Plan, which is a defined benefit scheme uh, for five higher paid employees, and to the NHS Pension Scheme, which is also a defined benefit scheme for six higher paid employees. I, I wasn't quite sure how this worked. Um, why, we, why, why is this organisation contributing to an NHS pension scheme? Well, I suppose uh, those, those six higher paid employees probably have an NHS pension that they are continuing to pay into, even though they've moved across the NH to the uh, King's Fund, which of course is completely independent from the NHS. It's independent from the NHS in every way. Um, so let's just end the little segment by um, Dr. Nikki Kanani. And here she is circulating her own self-praise with a couple of little hearts for herself uh, because of Dr. Ragshri Dawanya, if I pronounce that Wayan, Dariawan. I apologise the gentleman. You should as well. Uh, but I should, yeah. Huge <laughs> thanks to Nikki F, whose flu vaccine reminder letter, the very letter we've been looking at, has persuaded my dad to have the jab for the first time. Four doctors in his immediate family have so far failed. So this shows the power of what this woman is doing. And of course, Twitter is being used alongside the NHS. Mm. Well, with a few minutes to end, let's just bring up the hot topic. And I'm going to give an enormous thank you to a gentleman who traveled a long distance to see me yesterday to uh, make me aware of intersectionality. And if you've never ha heard of that before, I'm going to say to you, uh, please research it because this is starting to take the lid off how we have organisations like the NHS controlled from the inside, who controls them and how these individuals have such a protected state, uh, status. But if you never come across the term, well, this is just the wiki um, analysis of it. Intersectionality is a theoretical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. Examples of these are gender, caste, sex, race, class, sexuality, religion, disability, physical appearance and height. And I've added there in the margin that if it sounds innocent, it's actually deadly but it's going to take a lot of work by the UK column to bring this across to the audience. But this is an example of it at work. So this is an article from The Guardian. I, I think it's from The Guardian. And uh, we've got Neil Basu, the Met Assistant Commissioner. Uh, the headline of the article written by him is Police must view legitimate anger with care. We need to listen to our communities. 
Um, and then it, the subheadline is let's stand up to racist inequality and injustice. But of course, what are they actually, what is he actually doing? He's supporting Black Lives Matter, which are people who are threatening people on the streets and committing acts of vandalism. But in his mind, that doesn't matter uh, because he's now caught up in intersectionality. And so he ends the second paragraph there by saying, taking a knee was and is a powerful symbol of challenge and hope. And I was moved to see some of our officers do so. But personally, I see this as a time to stand up, stand up to racist, to inequality and injustice. So he's happy that the police are supporting Black Lives Matter as an aggressive, uh, violent, I would say, but certainly out on the streets threatening. Um, but he's saying we're going to stand up against injustice. So this man's mind is clearly in an interesting space, uh, intersectionality. This is another example that was given to me. And here we're showing a bizarre contrast with two articles that appeared in the New York Times. So on the left, we've got replacement theory, a racist sexist doctrine spreading in far right circles. And then by the same author, we've got opinion. We can replace them um, after she'd, she'd looked into white nationalism. So what, what the person who gave this to me is showing is that in the minds of the people, they've lost track of right and wrong, of fact and non-fact. It's become a mush of theory. And of course, the potential for this is people are not thinking properly. And here we've got former permanent secretary for the Department of Education uh, also promoting Black Lives Matter. So um, we've got a Tamara Finkelstein saying, as a leader, I know there's more to do to fight racism. My personal commitment, I will listen, I will learn, I will act. And Jonathan says, well said, Tamara, so much to be upset, angry and outraged by and so much more for us to do to show we really get it and we're doing all we can, not least tackling the whiteness. This is intersectionality, the whiteness of senior Whitehall. And then he's uh, promoting an aggressive organisation called Black Lives Matter. So the point being made to me is why can't this man think properly? Well, he can't think clearly, he can't use his cognitive processes because he's been reframed by intersectionality. And we'll do more on this in due course. Uh, but I'll just bring in these two closing slides for you today. Um, this one I thought was really excellent from uh, Financial Times Live. Governance is no longer equal to government. Government is but one player in the new framework. And that is exactly what you've described, Mike, in your opening section on censorship and the spying on the public by the state. It's within, I called it a soup of other organizations. Well, indeed, and this is why, for example, in, in the One World Governance series of articles that we've uh, published on the uh, UK Column website, the, the word governance was chosen very specifically because government isn't really part of it. No. It's, it's only, or, or at least it is only one part of it, uh, of, a, of a much broader. Civil society, exactly. this is big yes. society operating. And uh, just to ensure that uh, everybody does know that UK Column is paying attention, uh, this was the image uh, taken uh, from a passenger a couple of days ago on the A38 uh, near the UK Column's stay home essential travel only. Now, apparently some people have been reading that, that it's stay, 
home essential travel only. So if you've got essential travel to do from home, please carry on and do it. Right. It's very confusing. We'll leave it there. Yes. All right. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time on Friday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.